0: Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Hello and welcome to another edition of Between the Lines with the Virtual Academy. We are a podcast going beyond the bats to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. I am your co-host Brent Henson and today's topic is law enforcement specific but it's a subject that many of us struggle with every day. That's sacrificing our own well-being because of a breakdown in our work-life balance. Our guest today will be able to provide some direct insight and hopefully that will allow all of us to examine the issue with both perspective and guidance. But before we get too deep into the conversation, allow some levity as we bring in our host, Mr. Michael Warren. How are you, sir?
1: Man, I'm doing good. And it's a big day in my household today. Seems like there's always something going on in the Warren house. Well, well, yeah, sometimes good, sometimes bad. But today, the day that we're recording things, uh, is my mom's birthday. So I want to do a big birthday shout out uh, to Sarah, Mama Sarah. Hope you're having a happy birthday. birthday. Very Uh, good. The big 7-7 today. Nice. Yeah. That's great. Man, you start throwing up numbers like that, meaningful. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You've been around for a while. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know about you, Brent, but uh, I'm not 77. But there are days I wake up when I feel like I am.
0: True story. I went to Xavier's fifth grade Christmas party and some of the kids looked around and said, is that Xavier's grandpa? I literally (laughs) was 41 at the time.
1: (laughs) You know, uh, sometimes genetics and mother nature are unkind what they do but you know what though our guest today that has not been the case for him because mother nature has blessed him wouldn't you agree
0: i'm glad my wife is not on this video chat
1: yeah that, that, so. there, there are times where it's a good thing we do audio right so why don't you go ahead and tell us about him and bring
0: him on sure our guest today is a former san antonio police officer with more than 15 years of experience where he worked as both a patrol officer and as a member of the department's mental health unit, actually helped develop their wellness program. Like many guests on this podcast, he's also a veteran serving this country for six years as a member of the United States Air Force. His current role finds him as a training coordinator for First Help, an organization that works to reduce the stigma of mental health for first responders through education and advocacy work. You've heard us talk in depth about First Help before with previous guest Joe Willis. It is our extreme pleasure to welcome to Between the Lines Michael Moroda. Thanks for joining us
1: today, man
2: oh thank you brent thanks michael for for having me and yeah happy happy birthday to mama sarah 77. that is
1: i I haven't called her yet but i always call her and sing happy birthday you know because uh, you know birthdays don't matter so well mom you know when you stop having them (laughs) that's that's a bad thing you know so (laughs) so we may not like them but the alternative's worse yeah Absolutely. We really appreciate you being here today. And there are some, uh, I guess, we'll we'll call it administrative stuff that we should get out of the way first. Brent and I have expressed our, what's the word I'm looking for, Brent? Envy? Yes. Okay. Uh, I don't know where you're going, but I'll agree. uh, This guy, he's got to be a model at some point he seriously in fact i'm pretty sure i've seen him on some commercials or something like that how do you get that beard and that hair to be perfect every single time i see you
2: man it's you know it's so funny and i appreciate the compliment i don't want anybody to be disappointed when they actually see me but my my wife laughs because i have like a routine, and she's like, "Dude, your hair care products and your routine—it <laughs> takes us longer to get out of the house because of you than it does me." Yeah. Purple shampoo and all the curse of the white hair, Brent gets it. Man. I use
0: some of that purple shampoo, and my uh, hairdresser said uh, you may want to lay off because your hair is turning purple now. So I know <laughs> what you're talking
2: about. Yeah, we'll have an offline conversation about how to use it responsibly. Okay.
1: <laughs> Everything in moderation. Everything, yeah. everything in moderation.
2: What people don't realize about white hair is whatever you put in it, it's going to take the color of the product. So you got to be really like mindful. You put blue stuff, it looks blue. You put red stuff, it looks red. I had the conditioner, too, so I, I was really going down a rabbit hole with that stuff.
1: Well, I must have used the same <laughs> stuff they used on Wonder Woman's jet, because uh, th- th- there's not a whole lot there. They it, it didn't take on the, the shape or color of anything other than gone. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Brent, I don't know if I, if I told you this or not, but uh, Mike and I are actually taking a class together right now, and we meet via Zoom uh, with our cohort, and uh, one of the first classes I referred to him as the man with the perfect hair and beard, and, and the look on his face was like, really? Really, that's where we're going to go with this. It's an interesting group yeah. that we're with, isn't it, though, Mikey? It
2: is. Yeah, I've I have thoroughly enjoyed all the different perspectives, and uh, you know, being with Doctor Omani and Rich Carr is like every time they speak, it's something that you got to write down. It's uh, it's almost too much. I have so many things on my scratch pad that I'm writing down. Uh, it's incredible. Yeah.
1: And for our listeners, uh, and a shout out to to those folks there, uh, we're taking a a class called Brain-Centric Instructional Design. And if you're a trainer, if you're an educator, it doesn't matter what field you're in, I'm telling you, read the book make the investment this class like uh, like Mikey said man I'm writing stuff down you know and'm and I'm, I'm having to go back and type it later because if I don't I won't remember what it was I wrote but it really has been good for me
2: yeah I mean especially for Mike you know you and I have talked about it in that group coming from being career law enforcement and just looking at the way we train as law enforcement and then seeing how they've kind of changed the perspective from a cognitive pers- like it's just It's opened my mind about how we train within law enforcement, how I train personally. Um, It's been incredible.
1: Uh, Let's go ahead and get our conversation started. I want to start with the Air Force. And uh, I I wasn't an Air Force guy, but the Air Force holds a very special place in my heart. Because if it weren't for the Air Force, my mom and my dad would not have met. Uh, My dad was Air Force, and uh, he was from Indiana, and he ended up stationed at Robbins Air Force Base in Georgia. And that's when he met my mom. So thank you, uh, Into the Wild Blue Yonder. But uh, why did you choose Air Force?
2: Something that a lot of people don't know is I originally enlisted in the Marine Corps. And at the time, my father in law, God rest his soul, was alive. My brother in law was a former Marine. My mother in law's um, husband at the time was a Marine. Uh, my father's a. Uh, Marine. So I got real quick, a whole bunch of people that said, no, what are you doing? And, and I, you know, it was just where I felt like being led to. And, um, honestly, you know, I never considered the air force as a possibility. Um, one thing that I do know about the air force was I wanted to. Do some type of aviation, and uh, I didn't realize they had enlisted aviation jobs as a loadmaster, an engineer, and so I went to the recruiter and I said, "Hey, I I want to enlist, and this is what I, I want to do." Um, and at that point, I'd taken the ASVAB. I did. I had got a favorable score, so uh, yeah. So began my career with with the Air Force, and I got the job I wanted, and so that was that was super exciting.
1: So, what was your job?
2: I was a loadmaster on C five A galaxies. So. Yeah. So, for the uh, listeners who, who don't, aren't familiar, the C-5, the C being cargo, is the largest aircraft in the United States military. So, we did a lot of really heavy lifts. I mean, we could transport an entire unit. We could transport two CH 53s. Um, we could transport the Navy's Mark V special operations boat. Like, we could do some incredible things. And then uh, a lot of time was spent hauling families who are moving from the United States overseas. So we hauled uh, literally pallets of furniture. Um, for families moving back and forth, so uh, anything that needed to be transported for the United States military, we did it.
1: And for our listeners, if you ever get the opportunity to be close to one of those, it's it's almost like uh, when you see an aircraft carrier in the distance and it looks big, but but you don't understand yeah. how large it is until you get right beside. It. Then you're kind of overwhelmed by by its size.
2: Yeah, yeah, it was it was you know looking back on on my time in the Air Force and just like. I remember watching people lined up along the uh, runway because they were just like, what is this thing that's landing, you know? And then people just were so intrigued and fascinated by its sheer size and mass. And uh, it was pretty incredible.
1: Uh, and I'm going to throw a shout out to, to an organization that we're not even affiliated with. But uh, one of the most memorable times that uh, my, myself and my two youngest sons and my dad had together where we went a few years ago to the Air Force Museum at wright Pat, and uh, mm. this, this huge hangars, uh, talking about a history. I mean, the Air Force just came into being in 1948 and the history that it has and how far we've come as an organization. It's really mind blowing
2: yeah ab- absolutely fly fight win like that's what they always said it's like the air superiority that the air force continues to have i mean now in the with the space force like they just continue to expand their reach and uh i was it was a total honor to be part of that and i lo- left a lot of hearing behind because for folks who are familiar the c5a they were vietnam era aircraft and they were loud but incredibly efficient
1: a little parallel here One of the things that I don't think people know are how old some of those airframes are. Like you talked about, the C-5 was a a Vietnam-era aircraft. The the B-52 first took flight in 1955. It is coming up on 70 years of service, and it's still operational. I, I drive around these roads in Michigan. You know, it's like the aircraft that gets shot at carries a bunch of bombs can last 70 years, but a road in Michigan needs to be repaved after five. know, maybe we need to get those engineers together somehow to get a better product.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. They don't like the Air Force doesn't go out and buy new planes. The military is like, how can we take the current airframe and just make some some improvements and make it a little better, which they have since done at right. Warner Robin in Georgia, they took all the C5As and turned them into c 5 5Ms and now they have a bunch of upgrades and they sound like commercial jetliners and uh, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty cool.
1: Now, now, when I was a kid and we lived down there, there was a road that uh, when you're going from Macon, Georgia, where I lived over to one of Robbins, that roadway right there would go right along the the edge of Robbins Force Base. and just showing my age, they used to have the F4 Phantoms parked along there and, and so it used to be uh, f4s and b-52s that were based out of there the b-52s for uh aaron backstage they went to guam it's just amazing to me the aircraft and, and how much training is involved to keep Air Force personnel up to speed on these things that are constantly changing. I mean, like you said, even if you worked on a C-5 twenty years ago, you're going to need to be retrained when you go in because there have been so many modifications made to it.
2: Yeah, hundred. It was a constant, like staying current. They called it being current, and like it was nonstop. You were flying missions for training. You were flying missions to to stay current. Like, and right when you were done with one check ride, and you were if proficient. They They were like, okay, now you got to do this other eval. It was like nonstop because, I mean, the Air Force safety was the number one priority and they just wanted to ensure that everybody was constantly um, up to date and up to
1: speed. And this is a little bit out of order for our talk, but I think it, it bears pointing out here. That is the type of mindset that I think that we need in law enforcement when it comes to the well-being of our people. That constant improvement, that constant readdressing that, that constant staying up to speed, because unfortunately we have a lot of people that are still where they were when they came into the profession.
2: You know, and I and I like that you said that because, so I spent a lot of time training and spending time with um, law enforcement, you know, new new incoming law enforcement officers, men and women that have been on a number of years. And I always say like, we are, in my mind, Probably the most well vetted profession. In order to get the job, like the amount of vetting you have to go through just to even be considered to go to the academy, and you go through that process. You go to the academy, and you know academies are a lot of varying levels. I can tell you, at San Antonio, it was it was rigorous, man. It, you were not given anything, and then you get the job, and then you spend time in the FTO program. And you do that. And then you finally, you know, a year later, you're ready to be on your own. You have a headache every day for, you know, two months trying to figure out what's next. And then the same man or woman, they're the best that they're like, they're at the tip top shape mentally. They are just ready to go. And five years down the road, you see them and it's like a shell of themselves. And uh, I just often wonder, like wonder why
1: are we not doing well there in that space? You know, yeah, you know it's, it's interesting in the army, they called it PMCS and they were constantly talking about preventative maintenance. And mm-hmm. so you would take your weapons out, you would take your gear out and you'd go through all of this work on something that was still working. Okay. You know, it didn't have any tears. It still functioned, but all this, all this effort was put into preventing bad things from happening, from preventing it from getting worn out. And in retrospect, And they've obviously gotten better at it, but in retrospect, we spent so much time on equipment, but we didn't invest any time like that in preventative maintenance on our people and it was to our own detriment, to our people's detriment.
2: Yeah, 100%. I mean, you know, every year, at least at my agency, we went through training every single year, which wasn't required by the state, but the department liked to stay ahead, above and beyond the the training required by the state licensing agency. And I was like, we go through tactics. You know, we take apart our guns. We do clean. We do all these things. We're proficient with our firearms. We don't spend a whole lot of time learning how to be proficient as human beings. Um, And that was a space that I just was like, this is having some really big impacts on our profession.
1: So I I guess we'll we'll go back in time a little bit. Then You, you get out of the Air Force. What what was it that drew you to law enforcement as a career? (laughs)
2: Man, that's a great question. And I'm going to say something that, man, for a lot of people, you know, well, I'll just say, so my father was in SAPD. My father was the reason I I didn't want to be in law enforcement. Um, And interestingly enough, I, I never considered it as a profession until it was like, all right, I'm getting out of the military. I'm out processing. What job makes the most sense? Well, law enforcement makes sense and so uh, you know you could do that job you didn't have to have some kind of advanced degree or training um, you just had to have a willingness to serve and so I went and put in an application I needed a job young husband young father and and jumped right in man both feet
1: did you work at the same agency that your dad did,
2: I did yeah 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 hundred percent
1: how was that for you because uh, th- that can be both positive and negative.
2: Yeah, no. Another good question, Mike. Thank you. Um, so, my my father it was really interesting because my father left when I was very young. So, I didn't know my father through some very formative years. I didn't know him as a, as a teenager, as a young man. Um, I didn't know him again until I became an adult. But what I can say is when I got in the department everybody talked about my father like what a great guy he was and the impact that he had on their life and what a good supervisor and I just remember thinking he didn't have the same level of impact on me as years went on I said that's so common that's such a common storyline for so many of us in law enforcement is how great we show up at work um, and how not great we are when we take the uniform off and we're just husbands and fathers and brothers and friends like we don't do so well at it did you address that or did
0: you internalize it because i have to imagine that was frustrating to hear these people talk so glowingly and you maybe didn't have the same
2: feeling um i would say um you know initially probably I didn't recognize it um it took me a little bit of, of time but i certainly um, didn't say well yeah well you don't know this i probably internalized that and kept that a little bit to myself and just said hey you know i appreciate that but as time went on i knew that there was going to have to be a conversation had at some point um, because a lot of damage was done yeah i didn't bad mouth them at all
1: and i don't know your dad okay i've never met your dad but his story isn't that unique unfortunately in law enforcement even in many cases when the dad or the mom if they stick around they're still absent and they may not be physically absent but what's the uh the saying there wherever you are be there and that often is lacking in our law enforcement professionals
2: yeah. hundred, hundred percent. Yeah. My, fa- my father, he's a, he's a good guy. I, I want to make that very clear. Like we have a, we have a great I mean, relationship now by mentioning that no. at all. I was just curious. No way, man. You, you have to address the elephant in a room. I mean, that's something that absolutely had to be talked about and something that I did recognize because everybody talked about my father, uh, in these like loving terms and what a great guy he was. And I was like, well, I don't have this. I didn't have the same experience, but you are right, Mike, that as a storyline that i see again and again within this profession is um yeah how how solid of a job we do at work
1: and uh how how not so good we are at home and it's unfortunate because what we do at work is so incredibly important i mean it's an honorable profession it yeah. really is. It's one of those things where, you know, I, I get onto my kids and they'll say, well, Dad, I didn't mean to. So, what, well, you know, I can appreciate that, but the end result is still the same. And if we're over invested, even if it's over invested in something that is good and worthwhile, if we over invest, it becomes bad.
2: A hundred percent. You know, something that just came to my mind as you you were saying that is um, why we get into the job to begin with. And so, like I said, you know, my father's a reason I didn't want to become a police officer, but then he was also... At the same time, the reason that I probably wanted to be a police officer, I think it was probably a little bit more deep rooted, but something that I ask a lot of officers is like, what's your why, right? Like, why did you get in this job? Why are you doing what you do? And it's always very idealistic for so many folks like, oh, well, I want to serve my community. I want to do this good work. Or, you know, when I was a little boy, a police officer walked in and saved the day and something that was happening. And I just loved policemen. But, What I found, and I'm not a Dr. Reese, nothing, man. But I just, when you pick apart the layers a little bit more, I found it was stories of abandonment. It was stories of victimization. It was stories of hurt and pain that on a subconscious level, I feel like drove people to do this very important work because law enforcement, as you know, offer so many opportunities for the illusion of power and control. And we talked a little bit about this the other day. It's like, if I do this job, you know, when I wear my uniform, I call, you know, I told you, my wife used to say, go put on your costume, right? Because that's what it was. I put this on and it was like this alternate version of Mike, um, this version that I didn't really have to deal with the deeper hurts and pains. Because when I was in the uniform, everybody went, Oh, officer, you're here to fix my problem. And I kind of became addicted to that. As I became addicted to that, which addiction at its core is like avoidant behavior, it gave me more opportunity to avoid the bigger questions. Like, you know, Brent mentioned, is like, having to explore what it was about my father and that relationship that was lacking or that maybe drove me to the profession to begin with. You know, that was a much larger conversation. Kind of putting a Band-Aid on things just to kind of hold off
0: until things erupt. Sure.
1: I I liked how you use the the phrase, you know, you peel back the layers. Because I I think in our profession, a lot of times we try to say, hey, listen, I'm just a knuckle-dragger, you know? i just go out and do my job. and and the truth is, most of us are very complex creatures We're with this, this cauldron of emotions and all these things going on. It really is like we try to bury it, you know, like we just don't want to acknowledge it because if we don't acknowledge it, then we don't have to address it.
2: Yeah, 100 percent. And, you know, the other law enforcement, I'm some of the most incredible people. I've ever met in my life served in law enforcement. Like people that were special forces in the military or that had this like doctorate degrees and became police officers and we're doing this incredibly important work. Law enforcement introduced me to, to a wide variety of people coming to the job for a wide variety of reasons, but what I can say some of the most incredible human beings I've ever known and continue to know, that will be my lifelong friends, are our police officers and our first responders, just some amazing people.
1: I also wanna talk about how you labeled it as an addiction. Because that's what it really comes down to. And there was a class that I used to teach and, and I would ask people, I said, "Okay, I want you to do this for me. I want you to sit down and you shouldn't have to think about this. I want you to list the three most important things in your life in a list and i always make a joke hey listen if you're having to think about it that's a bigger problem we got to talk about someplace else <laughs> and you know you go around the room and you ask people what would you list and you know universally you know it was, you know, god family country family health work whatever all these things going back and forth and you know people are in a good mood and i said okay and i throw up a picture of a calendar to come follow you around for a week would the way that you invest your time reflect those priorities that you just wrote down. And it gets as quiet as it can be because what we say is not reflected in what we do.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's deep because you're right. If I ask people and I used to do that at in-service training and people always say, but I'm like, is that actually the law of priority? Like, is that actually what's important to you? And usually what I saw, and maybe you saw this too, Mike, is when I asked them, to write their list, it was like, yeah, God, family, work, you know, whatever, and they went down the list, right? And I was like, okay, I bet if you flip that list around, what's at the bottom is actually where most of your time is going, you know? And it almost always was. I wrote something down
0: yesterday, you'll be proud of me, Mike, I wrote a quote down, your direction, not your intentions, determine your destination. That's awesome.
1: Mm -hmm. But it's so true, and that's why I like the word addiction. Because if you talk to a drug addict and you ask them what's most important in your life, they'll talk about their kids or they'll talk about their family or they'll talk about whatever it is. The truth is, it's whatever they're addicted to. And that's why I love that that analogy of the job being an addiction, because there are a lot of good things that happen on the job.
2: Yeah, 100%. There's a lot of great things that happen on the job, but law enforcement um and just the all the like different opportunities to make money and like side hustles you can do also offers a really convenient opportunity to avoid life and avoid having to deal with some of the bigger issues going on and again the illusion of power and control that i feel being a law enforcement officer offers it's just an it's an illusion
1: when when i was a kid my parents worked at a children's home down in mission texas so i lived in a cottage and we lived in a boys cottage and there were anywhere between 10 and 13 boys that would be a part of this cottage. Uh, I mean, talking about distractions from life, uh, distractions from homework, because it was always somebody to play with. Somebody who was always wanting to play football or baseball. And those things are good but it caused me to neglect some things that were needed in life and the side hustles the overtime the late calls the the answering the phone when you're in the middle of a family event and getting called in while they're good they do give you reason not to be where you are
2: yeah totally not not present and i'm i'm familiar working in the wellness and resiliency space with the department Also, right. I remember thinking, well, this is my, this is my passion. This is my life's work. This is what I'm literally supposed to be doing Um, because I, you know, I'm like, I'm boots on the ground, helping officers navigate difficulties in their life. Um, Again, (laughs) I wasn't navigating the difficulties in my own life. Well, you know, we're sitting there uh, having dinner and the phone rang. I had zero boundaries. Again, addictive quality is my lack of boundaries, my inability to say no and say, I'm not gonna do that. Um, I wasn't kind to my family, but more importantly, I wasn't being kind to myself in those moments. I had drawn, I had no boundaries for me. You know, the assumption was if I do this thing and I do it well, somehow somebody's going to give me that pat on the back that's going to finally confirm that I'm good enough.
1: It really is. Like, it really, it's like a druggie that's looking for the next high. Well, well, the next one's going to be the one that that satisfies all, all all these all these wants and needs that I have, and then we get that. Well, now there's going to be another one, and we we fail to recognize it's never going to end, and it's never going to be enough.
2: Yeah, and then also, Mike recognizing that there's addictions that go beyond substances. Now, I think we all know within the first responder cultures, police, fire, there is a a huge propensity for alcoholism, for addictive behaviors, but addictions go beyond substances. So a part of my work with the department was working with officers that were struggling with alcohol. I probably took upwards of 20, 25 officers to treatment. It was a population that I loved and understood, although I had never been addicted to a substance. What people used to ask me was, well, then how do you know? And I'm like, because my addiction was rage. My addiction was anger. I'm a rageaholic in recovery, man. That was my drug of choice. If I wasn't angry, if I wasn't physically mad at something, it was like I, I didn't know how to live. I didn't know how to be in a space where I wasn't angry and enraged and blaming something, some circumstance, someone for all, all the anger that I, I was unable to deal with. So, for me, like that was... It was an addiction. It was an escape for me.
1: I would be remiss if I didn't ask you this here. What was it, what point, what what was going on that caused you to say, hey, you know what? I, I need to become more involved on the wellness side of things. Most people talk about that there was something that happened that's like, you know what? You gotta get this fixed.
2: Yeah, so I'm blessed. I've been married for for 23 years. I have two sons, 22 and 12, which I probably should have mentioned at the top end because they are the pride of my life, especially my wife. Um, By the grace of God, I continue to remain married today, post law enforcement. But it was 2019, um, that was 19 years into our marriage. Our marriage, our family structure hit rock bottom. And, you know, people say rock bottom. Everybody's rock bottom is a little bit different. But in this home, that was it. We knew I had a choice. I could do what I always did and blame and say, well, it was this thing. It would this. Here's the actual reason. Or I could take a step back and look at who is the common denominator here. Michael Marota is the common denominator in all of this and this has got to stop so the possibility that i might lose the people that i love the most was my when i said okay I, I gotta do something different and um i didn't just jump into wellness i didn't go hey my marriage is at the rock bottom maybe i should do wellness that wasn't what happened it was this kind of progressive, like, okay, first I need to fix this relationship. So how do I fix this relationship? Well, I got to fix me. And I got to heal little Mike. I got to heal teenage Mike. I got to heal all these different versions of Mike walk through that and heal those guys. And then uh, the adult who I had become is going to be able to begin to heal the relationship with my wife. And so that's what I did. And about that time, 2020 COVID hit, which COVID was a total blessing for my wife and I and my family, Um, but in law enforcement, there was this huge, this very palpable shift in mindset and you could just feel it nationwide. It wasn't just in San Antonio. It felt like there was a struggle. And so we in the the mental health unit, good buddy of mine, Joe Smarrow, with Solution Point Plus, he has since left the department, wonderful human being. He wanted to do a wellness class on the six pillars of wellness. Quite frankly, he approached the staff and said, hey, we want to teach this class. Um, we were told it didn't fit within the training requirements for the year. And so we said, fantastic, we're going to teach it anyways. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> that's what you do, right? Because people needed to hear this. And um, as I shared the six pillars, I shared my story as well because I wanted to get from behind the... Uh, the shroud of fear of like sharing my story and this idea that being vulnerable creates connectedness with, with the people. They need to hear this story. They need to hear the brokenness in order to hear the victory. And so that's what I did. And then every week I did that for a year, these men and women would stay after class and they wanted to, they wanted to visit like, Hey, it was almost like a whisper of like, shame like hey i'm going through something real similar you think we could talk about it yeah let's talk about it and so i started to build trust and it it started off as a trickle and then before you knew it man the faucet was open it was several hundred officers that were coming to me and as you can imagine i'm one person trying to manage all this trying to find resources and network and build a, a network of clinicians alcohol treatment yeah, it was daunting work but that's where it really started was the demise of my marriage and my relationship with my children because our adult son i love him but he'll tell you man dad he reminds me every chance he gets in a loving way you're so different with me than you were with fake than you are with me and i'm like man i i know and i will spend the rest of my life trying to uh, write those those messages that I left those negative core beliefs. So
1: I have to give some props here to my co-host. So often we hear stories about parents that fail to recognize how limited our time is with our kids and how important that time is until they're on their third or fourth kid. You know, but and by that time they they say, oh, "Well, you like you said, they're so much different." But my co-host is one of the most. Involved, supportive, fantastic fathers that I've ever been privileged to know. A guy that, that is not only proud of his son, but it is also a part of his son. I love getting on when we talk. I, I love hearing the stories of, of Xavier because, you know, I feel like I'm living through him. And then there was a video that was posted of them uh, doing a song, and it's just like, Man, how much better would we as professionals be? How much better would we as a country be if we learn that early rather than after a couple failed attempts at being a dad or being a mom? Uh, Thank you for that. I I didn't know you're going to make me cry.
0: (laughs) Part of that and the reason why I was excited to have you on here, uh, Mikey, is because I I have a similar story and it, it boils down to priorities, I was in a job, a very stressful job. It was driving me nuts, driving me crazy. And I made the decision to walk away, left all these things I had because I wasn't being the dad I wanted to be. So there's something to that, your mental health, your state of enjoying life. That's so much more important than a job you're going to do for 30 years and then you're done.
2: Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah. Thank you for, for saying that it's the truth. I mean, I was at a point in my career because people ask me like, why did you leave at, you know, year 16? Um, I didn't retire. I, I resigned and you know, it's a long story, Mike. And we talked a little bit about it, but you know, values, my, my values were no longer were the values outside the door of the department were no longer the values that I saw being lived out by the greater whole within, within the, the department. And that was a struggle for me because here I was on this, you know, transformative journey, really redefined my values and how I lived. And it just didn't, it didn't align. And there is no amount of money in the world. There's no amount of bought vacation time and retirement checks that can replace me here now with my sons and how they experience me and how they, they feel loved by me. I was just, I had to go, I need to spend more time with the kids. I needed to get back and make my wife a priority. Like I, I needed to fix things. And, um, there was a dramatic shift and leaving was not an easy decision. I didn't just, it was not an emotional decision. I can tell you that, but I was left with this hmm, question. Big question of like, well, what is, cause I'm a spiritual guy. It's like, what is God trying to tell me here? Like what's going on? There's this other shift within the growth journey. What, what was there still for me to learn? And I had to remove my, take myself out of the profession in order to allow that process to, to continue to happen.
1: I like watching athletics. I like watching sports. It is always heartwarming to me when I see a professional athlete who's making, you know, Aaron Bevel kind of money. Right. And, uh, They decide, you know what? This is costing me too much time away from my family, and they walk away. At no amount of money, like you just said, is going to replace the time that I have with my family. I don't want them to look back and always say, "Well, you oh, you know, you remember that trip? Oh no, that's right, you weren't there. You you remember that time? Oh no, that's right, you weren't there." And and it's a struggle, though. Bryn will tell you this. I, I, I struggle with this. I feel that what I do brings value. To the profession, and then vicariously brings value to our community and to our country. There are times where I have to evaluate Am I gone too much? What's the negative impact this having on my little immediate community? You said it earlier. You said you had to take a step back and evaluate what was going on. It's hard to take that step back.
2: Yeah, I mean, because when you take the step back, you have to relinquish control, you know, and sometimes you don't have any power over the process or the outcome. That's a scary place to be for law enforcement officers when you've been taught how to maintain control of everything for everybody, you know, and it's just Yeah, I had to take a a big step back and just kind of take that 50,000 foot view and look at what what needed to be fixed. And did it fit within the context of my career? And the answer was no, it it no longer fit.
1: It's amazing to me how we and I say we I'm talking about the profession. Uh, We encourage our people to think deeply and and to think critically and all these things when they're evaluating problems, when they're trying to come up with solutions for the problem. And I I tell you, I think that perhaps the biggest addiction in this profession is the addiction to control people. we, We laugh about control freaks and micromanagers and all that type of stuff. it's it's, it's unfortunate, but some of the most successful people in this profession were control freaks and micromanagers. And it's because they were able to utilize that control better than most others.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I never considered myself a controlling person uh, until after I, I left the job and I saw like, you know, truly what a control freak I had become. And that honestly, like I said earlier, man, it wasn't real that wasn't a real thing. I actually had zero control. I had power over nothing.
1: It's discouraging when you come to that realization. I, mean, yeah. you spent, I spent that entire time building this mirage.
2: Yeah. But you know, and my wife and I were talking, she's going through a, a 14 week program at church and they're going through a book and we were talking about you know, this idea of power and how human, as human beings, power and control comes in the form of like blaming people and circumstances and things. And I told her, isn't it interesting that you can have the same level of power and control by taking responsibility for your own actions. But why is that not what we want to do? Why is that like, we are so much less willing to accept power and control through ourselves and just constantly trying to maintain it through you did this and you made me this and and it's like wait a second i could take responsibility and and have power and control over myself now that's something i can do you know let me
0: ask you this real quick because i was able to walk away from a job you were able to walk away from a job there are going to be people listening right now that they don't have the luxury to walk away but they still need to make a change in their life something needs to change what can they do where can they start
2: man that is that is a great question and my answer to that would be start inside your home whatever your support system is you need to start having some like uh, vulnerable conversations how can I shore some of these things up in my own personal life have discussions with the children have discussions with your spouse or your significant other whoever occupies space in your life I think that's a great place to start even if you don't have a the outward like there's not problems and things aren't falling apart it's still a great place is like hey let's sit down and have a discussion about what What does our future look like? What does it look like uh, if we start dreaming together now about what life looks like post law enforcement? But I think for me, start within your own homes. Cause I get asked that quite a bit, Where, where should I start? I'm like, start within your home and start within yourself. That's another big piece of this is like, start digging into who you are and go back and spend time and heal some of those other versions of you. Cause we all have multiple versions of ourselves. Uh, go back and reassure them that they're safe and they're okay and um, that they didn't get it right. And a little self-compassion goes a long way. So that's where I I would start. Let me start in my own home. Let me start on myself.
1: I've talked about this book before on this podcast, Lead Yourself First by Raymond Mm. Catholic. He talks about in there that especially in society today, we never have time to sit down and truly reflect and think deeply. And, and he advocates for regular scheduled time of solitude for the purposes of deep thinking, because it, we never do that. I think that's, that's required for that, that step back, that reflection on, on thinking big picture. And it's like society is doing everything they possibly can to keep us from having those times.
2: Yeah, I love that. And being willing to step out into into the unknown and the possibility that there's going to be fear, you know, so you may have to take a risk, you know, self self growth. And it's a risk. Absolutely. And it can be a scary place to be because uh, there's a lot of unknowns. If I go and ask my partner, hey, I wanted to talk about how I can improve as a husband or as a father there's a little bit of fear with what, what might follow that question. And you got to be willing to sit in that and spend a little time with it and understand that this is a vibe, like vibration a feeling that I'm having going through my body. I'm going to accept it. I'm going to welcome it. I'm going to know it. I'm going to invite when it comes in, I'm going to invite it and spend time with it. But I'm also going to see how I can um, have it occupy space within me a little bit less. And how you do that is sit down and, and be compassionate with, with yourself.
0: One time I had a, uh, I had a therapist that I was talking to and she said, you need to, you need to be vulnerable. And I said, I don't like that word. I, I don't like that. I don't want, I don't want you to say, well, there's, there's part of your problem. <laughs> so yeah, there's a moment of clarity for me there.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, just as society and we're thinking, you know, talking bigger picture here. I think one of the most beneficial things that we could do would be reframing what we define as success how we define a successful person it seems like society you know everything's about metrics you know how many followers do you have how many subscribers do you have how much money do you have what rank do you hold those type things right there i guarantee you that in 10 years when we go and we talk to Brent's family they're going to define him as a success because of how he handled himself and behaved as a husband and as a dad and the truth of the matter is you know there's old saying said that the best thing that that a dad can do for his kids is to love their mother mm. and by doing that now we're reaching generational impact and it's just a reframing of the whole success thing as you stepped out because you walked away from the police department there had to be some uncertainty but based upon what your son is saying about you now, we have to define that decision as a success. It may not you may not be where you want to be, but so far it's been pretty daggone successful.
2: Oh my God, a hundred percent. And you know, I think Harvard, if I'm not mistaken, is still has that longitudinal study about like defining happiness. And still and it's funny that they need this like 50 year longitudinal study. But what determines like happiness and longevity relationships, you know, it's directly correlated. Like, what are the quality of your relationships? How are you loving and how are you being loved? Because ultimately it's going to decide your longevity, your happiness. It's going to give you long term joy and sustainability over time because law enforcement is a a drop in time, you know, like there's so much life before and after these career fields.
1: But I think that's the problem with an addiction Mm. because addiction is about happiness. And we think that that's the be all end all when the truth of the matter is it's joy and joy is lasting and its long term and it's deeper, but it requires a little bit of work. It's just not as it is not a one hitter. I, I think that the work that you're doing with first help, helping people drive towards that as a goal rather than that short term happiness, that short term fix that we get oftentimes through our job. Oh,
2: man, it's my favorite thing to be in a room of cops, just 10 cops, a dozen cops, maybe, and just have open, honest, vulnerable conversations and to see their perspectives change, like right in front of you. And at the end of a four hour class, they come to you and they say, I've never heard anybody speak like that or talk about things from that perspective. Um, man, that's everything thing to me and it continues to guide me on my healing journey because this journey, man, it will never end. It's a lifelong journey. Self-improvement doesn't just stop. I'm never gonna arrive. I I love that there's always gonna be more work to do. And if I've ever I feel complacent or like, hey, this feels pretty good. I know. I got to lean in a little bit more, dig a little bit deeper and figure out what things need to be fixed.
1: If somebody were to find themselves right now in the position that you were when you started this journey and they were looking for some help, uh, where are some places that are resources? uh, Where can they find information on First Help?
2: They can go to our website. That's the number one, S-T-H-E-L-P dot org. Um, They can go to our website. They can see what kind of trainings we offer. They can take a look at our uh, national database of suicide data collection. The organization was founded by Karen Solomon in 2016 and the only organization capturing these metrics uh, year over year successfully. I think that's a great place to go. We have a resource page, um, firsthelp.net as well, which we're in the process of kind of uh, rebuilding that out. I also encourage people to find me personally. Um, am I am I allowed to give like my number out? Is that can I do that or no?
0: Do whatever you want to do, buddy. If you're fine with it, we're good with it.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I really don't mind because um, I know the folks listening to this podcast are people that I I know and love. And um, my phone number is two one zero three four seven eight zero zero eight. I encourage people like they're really exploring this, uh, leaving their career or how to do it. Give me a call and uh, I I will not um, I'll be as open, raw and vulnerable as possible with them. And I'm not encouraging people to tomorrow give up their jobs at all. But what I am encouraging people is to know when to say when. Know when it's your time. Kevin Gilmartin talks in his book, um, Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement, how it, two years is always the magic number because two years feels long enough away that it's still in the distance, but it's also close enough that it seems reasonable. So you'll hear, all, and I hear it all the time, I'm going to do two more years and then I'm going to do this thing. In two more years, then I'll have I'll be vested in the pension. Great. Know when it's time to, to hang it up. And I had a, a therapist tell me one time, if you had six months to complete your 10 year goals. How would you do that? Write it down and come back to me with your plan. And I was like, well, that's kind of a scary thing because everyone assumes we all have goals and timelines and timeframes, but what if it's right now? What if you're in it and you just don't recognize it? Anything's possible. If you just spend a little time with it and you have the support of the people you love.
1: Mikey, as we wrap things up, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your vulnerability because modeling that type of behavior, uh, I think is one of the most impactful things that someone can do because, uh, once, once you hear somebody else doing it now, it's not so strange. It's not, it's not like Brent, Brent, but I don't, I don't like that word, <laughs> but, but at least if somebody else is doing it, it's not so peculiar. Right. So I appreciate you doing that, doing that, the training that you're providing through first help, I think Invaluable. We are huge supporters of the organization here. And I might as well throw this out the need doesn't stop. Okay. First Help is run through donations from people like us. I cannot encourage you enough to support this organization. They put their money and their time where their mouth is, it's meaningful work. So please consider supporting them. Thank you so much, man, for agreeing to be here. Thanks for sharing your story with us uh, because every time I hear something like this, it just reminds me, you gotta do a better job. Gotta do a better job. And it's good to be reminded.
2: No, I appreciate you all having me on. It was uh, such a pleasure. I feel like we just like scratched the surface. There's so many different directions, but um, I hope somebody out there who's considering this or needs to improve some part of their area of their life. Like I encourage them, reach out to me, go to our website, find someone and do something sitting by and, you know, picking up the bottle is, is not the answer be willing to to be
1: vulnerable. Absolutely. These these conversations are never easy, uh, but they that doesn't take away from their meaning. And, and I, I I think my biggest takeaway for, from our talk today: don't two year your life away.
0: Yeah. yeah. I, like I said at the beginning, we were going to talk specifically about law enforcement, but this applies to everybody and if it applies to you find help we'll put resources in the show notes we will put uh, a link to first help in the show notes and again those donations go a long way for that organization so definitely uh, reach out to them and you'll find all that on our website at between the lines of virtualacademy.com mikey thank you so much for being vulnerable yeah. with us today and telling your story because it, it will help someone who's listening right now
2: yeah i appreciate you guys and thank you all for the good work you do and thank you to the audience and those that serve and continue to serve Uh, you're in my prayers and uh, hope the
1: best